0: In episode one, we brought up the questions that A Midsummer Night's Dream helps us ask. Questions about issues we face in our own lives. Questions of friendship and attraction. In this episode, Tiffany Stern, professor of Shakespeare and Early Modern Drama at the Shakespeare Institute in Stratford, takes us through the plays, sometimes comical, sometimes dark, explorations of those questions. But we begin with a different kind of question – a question about performance. In the play, we see the
1: mechanicals rehearsing. And that means on the actual stage, they say, oh, this will be our stage. So that's just a nice layer of meta theatre richly there, making us think about drama. We see the very process by which uh, a play was put on
0: A Midsummer Night's Dream helps scholars think about the historical question of how Shakespeare's own company would have rehearsed and performed his plays. Understanding such matters can help us be better readers of Shakespeare. The Rude Mechanicals, for instance, aren't given the whole text of their play. They're given just their own parts. And this is how Elizabethan actors rehearsed too. So the actors are given they're separate parts. They're not given the
1: full play. They are given just the lines that they are going to say in the play, which is what actors were given. They were given their lines and they were given a cue of the last one or two or three words before each of their lines. And then we see their single rehearsal um, from a position of knowing their lines and cues, but not really knowing the story. And because they are very foolish actors, They don't actually know the difference between their lines that they're to speak and their cues that they're to listen out for. So all of that, which is all metadrama and all funny, 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 also very fiercely brings right to the forefront acting,
0: parts and cues. You can uncover all kinds of important images and patterns and character traits in a play of Shakespeare's if you read it as Shakespeare's actors did, just one character's part at a time. There's a lot to be said for taking a full text and breaking it
1: down into actors' parts and getting Hippolyta's part, her lines, her cues, for instance, and then seeing what would the actor see if you're Theseus, you'll see Oh, my word. I've got a moon obsession and a death obsession. And you'll also see how that obsession uh, uh, is also shared by Oberon, maybe suggesting that they uh, doubled one another. You'll see Hippolyta has, has pity. You'll see that um, Oberon suddenly goes into rhyme um, uh, when he gets the flower, suggesting that the flower has to him. He thinks he's using it to magic uh, stuff on other people, but it's also having an effect on him. So there are all kinds of different things you see, uh, the, the way Puck plays with rhyme schemes, all kinds of things you see when you look at a play in terms of actors' parts.
0: One thing that is common to many characters in the play is an obsession with the senses, especially hearing and sight. This is a play of the senses, and it's
1: a sensual play. Some, a lot of its beauty is is sensuality. And I think some of the rush of pleasure we get from it is, is that, that all our, our, our senses get kind of heightened and a little bit titillated by, by its language by, and by it visually.
0: A Midsummer Night's Dream features songs and music, and it contains some of Shakespeare's most lyrically beautiful language, especially about nature. When Oberon explains how he will drop the flower's juice on Titania's eyes, he begins, "'I know a bank where the wild thyme blows, "'where oxlips and the nodding violet grows, "'quite over-canopied with luscious woodbine, "'with sweet musk-roses and with eglantine. "'There sleeps Titania,' and there the snake throws her enamelled skin. This long description of the flowered bank is not at all necessary for the plot, but it conjures up a richly sensuous image of the forest. So do Titania's orders to her fairies to tend on bottom. Feed him with apricots and dewberries, with purple grapes, green figs and mulberries, and pluck the wings from painted butterflies to fan the moonbeams from his sleeping eyes. These lines are rich with an appetising abundance of tastes and also signal the play's intense interest in eyes. So it does have
1: that huge focus on vision. Hearing the audible is very, very important also in this play. The fairies are singing all the time.
0: Bottoms singing is what first attracts Titania's attention. Hermia thanks her ear for helping her find Lysander in the dark. But it is the sense of sight that plays the key role in Oberon's plots with the magic flower.
1: It's a play with the randomness of a magic flower, a magic flower that makes you instantly fall in love with the first person you see, and the, the randomness of putting the flower in people's eyes and taking it off or not... Um, shapes quite a lot
0: of the drama. Oberon describes the magic flower as making any man or woman madly dote on the next creature they see. The word dote refers to a mad, foolish kind of passion. And in this play, the word love tends to have a similar meaning.
1: The word love is used a lot in the play. It does not mean romantic affection. It means fancying or sex. (laughs) <laughs> or fancying and sex. Uh, once you know that, you kind of understand the whole of
0: the play. Love is more likely to prove to be just infatuation or physical passion if it depends solely on what you see. In this play, the whole plot revolves around people being driven in and out of love by their eyes. When Titania falls in love with Bottom, she declares mine eye is enthralled to thy shape. When she falls out of love, she expresses herself in almost the same terms. Oh, how mine eyes do loathe his visage now. In this play world, these rapid shifts of passion occur because the character's eyes have literally been enchanted by the flower. But Shakespeare suggests that the flower's juice, like Cupid's arrow, may just be a metaphor for the irrational, sensory way that human passions normally work when no magic is involved at all. Another of his great, great interests is what brings
1: about love in the first place. You want it to be led by the heart and the head, but actually, uh, it's basically... It's in the eyes, it's what you fancy. It's whether you fancy someone or not. It's it's not as deep as you hoped. That's certainly what this play uh, is has as a focus. We're told that Cupid is both winged and blind. You know, Cupid doesn't see. He he th- hurls his arrows around randomly. And in a way, the flower is the extension of, of Cupid. It, it, It has a random effect on the person whose eye it goes into. And oh my word, we thought that was love.
0: Lysander and Demetrius' speeches underscore the idea that love might not always come from the heart or the head. They speak most emphatically about the rationality and authenticity of their love when their feelings have been manufactured by the magic flower. After Puck enchants his eyes, Lysander declares to Helena, The will of man is by his reason swayed, and reason says you are the worthier maid. And at the end of the play, Demetrius describes his desire for Helena's love in idealistic terms. Now I do wish it, love it, long for it, and will forevermore be true to it. But... The flower's magic is apparently still on his eyes. And they both think they've worked something out. That's what
1: they both say. I've thought it through. I've worked out who I really, really love. And that's what we want to hear. That that's And that's where we want the play to go. Yes, it's rational and it's thought out and it's meant and it's chosen. But the play undercuts everything they've said by the fact and you pour some juice in someone's eye and they change their mind and then you pour some other juice in their eye and they change their mind back again so what did it what did it really really mean so the whole play its plot suggests no it's random and it's not rational and it's not meant you just after the fact try to rationalize it that that's not where we wanted to go but i think that's that's what the play says
0: The magic flower certainly creates tremendous comedy, as Lysander makes fun of Hermia's small stature with insults like, You bead, you acorn! And Helena runs away from Hermia, declaring, And though she be but little, she is fierce! But even as it makes us laugh, the magic flower plot can also unsettle the other kind of comedy we're expecting, the kind that ends with happy, loving unions. This play is never about romantic love. It's it's about
1: the desire for ownership and sex. Um, The women fall prey to that too.
0: One of the flower's most distressing effects is that it doesn't just conjure up romantic passion that isn't real. It also threatens the real love found in genuine friendships. The women have a background
1: uh, pre-play, which the men don't and their background was female amity.
0: Perhaps Helena's most moving speech is her plea to know why Hermia has joined with the men in mocking her. The hours that we have spent when we have chid the hasty-footed time for parting us, oh, is all forgot, she says. She describes how they used to sit and sing together, as if our hands, our sides, voices, and minds had been incorporate. A description that could apply to an ideal romantic union, too. A similarly moving speech is Titania's description of her votaress, the mother of the Indian boy.
1: The other great friendship in the play was indeed Titania's friendship for her votaress, who died, and Titania took on her baby boy. And that is very charming. And then at a certain point in the play, she just gives the boy to Oberon. That doesn't make sense with the story hitherto. We thought the whole point was that she loved and wanted to nurture the boy and keep the boy. And then after all the bottom business, she's just lost interest in the boy. It doesn't matter so much anymore. That, that's horrible. What about the votress? What about the memorialization of that friendship and that love? This play constantly shows friendship being threatened by sex.
0: This similarity between Titania and Helena, both having their friendships compromised by the flower, reflects Shakespeare's main strategy for structuring this play, creating parallels between the different worlds and the different characters to emphasise their key qualities. This is a play which, because of its complexity,
1: it very often wants to look at the same theme in two slightly different ways. Um, So structurally, one of the big ones is uh, the play in a play telling a love story that ends tragically with the lovers dead versus the bigger play, this play, which tells a love story which ends with everyone married. Um, But actually there are parallels like that throughout.
0: We mentioned in episode one that Theseus and Oberon are also parallel characters. Both are rulers, and Oberon is in a rocky marriage, while Theseus seems to be on his way to one.
1: And and the main love story, which is the story of of the the beleaguered Amazon that that he's stolen and is now marrying, that overhangs the whole tale. And it seems to me is a bit depressing that it's this that that the framework of the story is a forced marriage and i i do feel as though if if the play has a bleak message it's about sex and it's about marriage uh it's about how there isn't real love and there isn't real friendship and people will give over almost everything to sex with someone who isn't even that nice and um And you know, and in that way, you go, oh my word! But then, is is this a comedy at all?
0: That bleak suggestion about sex and love might seem to corrode the play's comedy, but it might also be part of the play's power. In spite of its fantastical setting, the play connects to our real experiences. None of us have ever had our eyes enchanted with Puck's magic flower, but most of us have experienced the heartbreak of love and its bizarre irrationality. Everyone
1: alive has probably experienced loving someone who didn't love them back. I think just about everyone knows what it's like or or they don't love you as much back as you love them And you can't understand it. And you can't understand, given that I feel this way about you, how do you not feel that way about me? We've all experienced that. And most of us have experienced the reverse, the horror of someone loving you more than you love them. (laughs) You know, and you're thinking, but but why would I love you (laughs) though? We've all experienced that. So on one level, Shakespeare is going to that place that we all know about and that we all know is illogical. And I think we all know that there's something insane about love and you are often drawn to love an unsuitable or unavailable person. <laughs> so Shakespeare goes to that place. He he dares to go right there and he dares to go looked at externally. It's
0: all pretty silly. The first time you hear it, it's an uncomfortable idea that love, which we build up and glorify in so many ways can be illogical or insane or silly, but it can start to make sense when you realise that it does actually chime with some of your experiences. By reflecting, in a comic context, some uncomfortable truths about love, the play might make it easier to acknowledge those truths and to ask ourselves some useful questions about the relationships in our own lives.
1: Quite often with the play, we're looking for the answer, the thing that it is saying, which is the message that we can take out and rule our lives by. And I don't think the play is being as comfortable or as safe as that. My problem talking about this is that it it's hiding the humour of the play and making the play sound very, very dark.
0: The play's sceptical take on love and sex and friendship might seem like it's ruining a light-hearted comedy with quite a lot of unnecessary darkness. But on the flip side, we could also see the play as taking that darker side of passion and lightening it up. Around the same time Shakespeare was writing A Midsummer Night's Dream, he was also writing Romeo and Juliet. That famous love story ends with the suicides of the two lovers – In A Midsummer Night's Dream, that same story of suicidal lovers is retold in the Pyramus and Thisbe play, but its tragedy is tempered by the mechanical's farcical performance of the story, and by the comic ending of the larger play. A Midsummer Night's Dream invites us to face the less pleasant realities about love, and who we might become in relationship with others but it does so while inviting us to laugh at and with its characters, which might make it a little easier to laugh at ourselves. Sometimes that's just what we need to do. Haven't some of us felt, like Titania, as if we've woken up and realised that we were in love with an ass? We are the recipients of this play. It's, it's for us to
1: rationalise and judge it. This is a play of parallels. Is there any parallel with me in this play? And if so, do I like that? <laughs> it's a little reductive of what one might think of as of the complexity of being human. Um, but as I say, what what might be horrifyingly the case is that, that you know, you go, oh, how incredibly superficial. Um, you, you feel as you see uh, and you you randomly love one person more than another, but but then you realise that is actually literally true of yourself And, and that that thing that seems reductive is also true.
0: Puck makes fools of the lovers by putting the flower's magic illusion on their eyes. But maybe the play itself can work like Oberon's Antidote Herb, which removes the illusion and takes away all error. It's a fantasy that can clarify reality with at least a few laughs along the way. I think what these plays
1: so often do is give you something to think about. And one thing you can think about is, does your love have a sure foundation or not? And it's always worth giving that a good hard thing and sorting it out if you can. And I think the play, in a funny, funny way, asks us to do that. So experiencing Shakespeare is a way of thinking through issues in your life. This play, for instance, is a way really, really of thinking about love and lust and what the purpose is of marriage. As I said, it doesn't give you answers, but it gives you fabulous questions.
0: In our next episode, we'll look at both some comical and some deeply serious moments from this play and see how Shakespeare uses both comedy and tragedy to call into question some of our conventional notions of love.